Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. God, we thank you for bringing us here together on your day, the Lord's day, and to ask this morning as your word is brought that we would have a greater understanding of the blessings we have, all the spiritual blessings we have in Jesus Christ, and your hand has reached back to eternity and elected those that you love, and today we live in the present blessing of adoption. We thank you for these things and ask that we have open ears and open hearts to receive and that you would guide your willing but needy servant in this time. Lord, we thank you for your word and ask thy blessing and that you would meet with us now. In Christ's name, amen. You can open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll be in the first eight verses. Uh, this section runs to verse 14. I see a small change of a direction in verse 9, so I took that exit and got off and stopped at 8, and we'll have plenty to chew on this morning. John Owen, the great English pastor, wrote, our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not a lack of effort, but a lack of our acquaintedness with our privileges. Some three centuries later, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, what we primarily need is not an experience, but to realize what we are, who we are, what God has done for us in Christ, the way He has blessed us. Because too often we Christians live like spiritual paupers instead of spiritual millionaires. Now, I don't want to put those two quotes up there and then we just run by them because these quotes are key to understanding Ephesians and understanding where we're going in this sermon this morning. Can you identify with what those two great pastors said? I can. And we need to change that. Because in verse 3 this morning it says we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We need nothing else. This should put us under great conviction. And that should lead us to a purpose. And then that purpose should lead us to people. This was the way of life for the apostles and the early church. And I believe it is something in our day much of that has been lost. In this short letter to the Ephesians, Paul explains in a wonderful way the God-given, Christ-secured, Holy Spirit-applied privileges of the Christian life and what we are to do with them. So the letter is kind of divided into two sections, the great doctrines of the gospel and then how the last three chapters, how we then are to live them out under such a great Savior as Jesus Christ. So before Paul calls the Ephesians to live uh, lives of holy obedience to Christ, he sets before them the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. So here's, the, the Bible, here's how the Bible approaches the Christian life. Before there are appeals or exhortations to obedience or godliness, God sets before us the riches of his grace, 
He sets before us what he has done for us, and we can read this in both Testaments. The gospel has a particular grammar to it. The indicative, the giving of knowledge, of grace, always precedes the imperative, the command of duty. When we are reluctant or half-hearted in our walk with Jesus, we don't need more exhortation. We need more Jesus. We've become disconnected from the Savior. We've unplugged the lamp. We've turned off the light. We need to switch the light back on. We must turn and look to Jesus. We must look to the cross. We must look to the gospel. So here, step by step, Paul introduces the spiritual blessings that are predestined, that are blood-bought privileges for everyone who has put their self-abandoning faith in Jesus Christ. Paul's intention throughout Ephesians is to deliver us from our morbid preoccupation with ourselves. One commentator says Paul gives us a, a panoramic and exhaustive picture of the greatness of Jesus Christ, the salvation he has bought for us, and the exalted calling we have in him. So we have not only been bought, we also have a calling. We've been given a new life, and through us, God is creating a new society. Men, we are kingdom builders, and we're going to be talking about that. New standards have been established. New relationships have been brought to us. There is a new kind of harmony in our life, and hostile are we to all forms of evil in the name of Jesus Christ. Paul's motives for the Ephesian is to establish and strengthen their faith, to warn them against encroaching deceitfulness of the false teachers and false teachings, and to enrich their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, the purpose today is the same. We need to be strengthened in our faith, and we need to be warned of the enemy encroaching on our territory, and we must know Christ better so that we can fight the fight. Now, just a little bit of background. Um, I don't want to belabor this, and I, I, but when you, when you jump into something, I want you to know a little bit about the letter. I'm sure you've all read it, but I feel like I need to do this. I was telling my wife I'm a little longer than I want to be, and I always want to be in and out quick. Um, but anyway, I'm going to do it. Ephesus was in modern-day Turkey. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia a renowned religious center for its famous worship of the emperor and, of course, the goddess Diana. Paul came to Ephesus 53, 54 AD and stayed there for three years. He wanted to build a church, a mighty church in Christ in the middle of this pagan place, this place of pagan idolatry. But now Paul writes this letter some six to eight years later, 60, 62 AD, and he's in a Roman prison. But Paul, like all of his letters, didn't come to tell them about his imprisonment. He doesn't care about that. But to encourage, instruct, challenge, and inspire the Christians in Ephesus. So now, let us look to Ephesians 1 through 8. If you have your Bibles and you can stand, please do. I'll read the first eight verses of Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Just a quick walk through the introduction. Again, verse 1, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And he writes to the saints who are on Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is an apostle. And he's an apostle by the will of God. Three things briefly about Paul. Paul is is Saul, a former persecutor of the church. Then he becomes Paul. And the important thing about Paul is he lived out every spiritual blessing of Christ in the heavenly places. An apostle was a uniquely commissioned ambassador of Christ. Paul, once Saul, said about himself, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. Acts 26 describes him as a man filled with hate, exceedingly enraged against Christ and his people. And his sole mission in life was to destroy the world of the way, of this new faith in Jesus. That was his mission. But by the will of God, he is an apostle to the one he once so violently opposed. Think of Saul. One day, this man is wreaking havoc, breathing threats, murders against the follower of Christ. The next, he's lying face down in the dirt, no longer Saul, but Paul crying out, Who are you, Lord? Soon filled with the Holy Spirit, he takes up the cross of Christ to become the greatest evangelist that ever lived. Now, Paul always referred to himself as the least of the apostles. He felt he was even unworthy to be called an apostle because he had persecuted the church of God. Now, apostles are unique. Uh, To be an apostle, one had to have a personal encounter or witness of Jesus' resurrection. Now, for Paul, his conversion, he had to have this to be credible to the church because, of course, he once persecuted the church. It had to be undeniable, and, of course, it was. But we are are not going to have that kind of experience. We aren't. The Lord isn't going to come to us in the light walking down the street as it did with Paul. But what is true of Paul's conversion is true for every Christian. It is the pattern. And you see there's lots of patterns. It is a pattern for all conversions to Christ in this respect. Paul owed his conversion to God alone. In 1 Timothy 1.13 he says, I obtained mercy. And that's where grace comes. The sovereignty of God and salvation is not just a Calvinistic distinctive. It's a biblical distinctive. Except for God's sovereign interposing of mercy in Christ, where we receive faith by grace, we would be without hope and we would be eternally without God. Paul did not choose to be an apostle. He did not initiate his calling. God set Paul apart and chose him to be an apostle. And then Paul lived under the lordship of Christ and knew that his life no longer was his own. Do we know we have been bought at a price and our life is no longer our own? 
Paul is an apostle by the will of God, set apart for his plan and purpose. And though we are not apostles, brothers and sisters, we too have been set apart for God's plan and God's purpose. The recipients of this letter are called saints. A saint is a holy one, one who is irreversibly set apart by God for God. It says they're faithful. And by faithful, Paul means that these saints have been tried and found to be trustworthy and loyal and dependable. Paul writes, they're in Christ. This is the most frequent description of Christians by Paul. Nine times in the first 14 verses. To say they are in Christ, Paul is highlighting the believer's union with Jesus Christ. United to him through faith, raised to a new life. They now live, Romans 6, 4. We too are in Christ and we live in a fallen world. And this union with Christ is vital for us to survive. 2 Peter 3.18 says we are to grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to grow in this union with Jesus. John writes that nothing or no one can snatch us out of his grip. He is our everlasting security so we can take heart to that. Once we are in Christ and we are bound in this union with him, there is nothing here that can pull that union apart. Theologian John Murray calls our union with Christ the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. We are in union with Jesus Christ. It is a personal union where we are specifically, individually, eternally united to Jesus Christ through his gospel. It is a spiritual union forged by the Holy Spirit where Christ indwells in every believer. It's a faith union. By grace, our faith brings us into union with the Savior. And this is a working, growing, active reality in every believer's life. And the process never ceases, not here nor in eternity. Secondly, Paul, in the second verse of the introduction, uses two key words, grace and peace. And Ian Hamilton writes this about grace. He says, grace is more than mercy because it denotes not simply love, but the love, take this in, The love of an infinite, sovereign, transcendent, superior being who chooses whether or not he would love us. For him to love us, this is grace. And I need, we need, a deeper understanding and appreciation what grace means and what it is. Peace. By adding peace, Paul is not blessing the believers with the prospect of a trouble-free life like, hey, peace, man, you're going to be all cool. No, thanks, Gary. Peace from God the Father is the joy and the assurance of the Father's love on us and in us in Christ. We are to rejoice in this assurance of his love. And the more we look to Jesus, the more this peace which God has given us will be deepened and strengthened. It is God's peace alone that brings us joy. My wife can tell you I can be an anxious, fidgety critter. And when I get out of sorts, I am not looking to God and I'm not asking for the peace of God. Imagine me, a temperance issue. Amen. (laughs) It is God's peace that brings joy. And I always marvel too that the first thing that Jesus says in the upper room when he meets with the apostles after he uh, rises from the dead, he says, I give you my peace. So Paul here is writing to faithful saints who are in Christ, filled with grace, filled with peace, and now the apostle is ready to get into the letter. I'm going to do three things this morning. 
verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ. We'll spend the vast majority of our time there. Uh, secondly, verses 4 through 6, the past blessing of election. And then 5 through 8, the present blessing of adoption. So first, uh, from verse 3, every spiritual blessing in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I know some of your translations may say praise instead of bless. Commentators, pretty much the same thing. It means to speak well of God, to give him glory when declaring. So uh, if it says that, we're, we're all on the same page. Now, Paul blesses the Father for his eternally planned and graciously executed redemption on our behalf. On this behalf of all of his elect, his son, and sealed with the Holy Spirit. The context here is that Paul is opening this letter with genuine praise and wonder at God's lavish grace. I think I should wake up each morning and give God genuine praise and wonder at his grace that has been lavished. The subtext here is that this praise reveals these blessings and how we should overflow with praise to God. I want us to be mindful, John Owen and Martin Lloyd-Jones, who remind us we lack, we all lack in our acquaintedness to these privileges and blessings, and that hinders our walk with Christ. Are you hindered this morning in your walk with Christ? Of course we are, and we want to look to Christ to lessen those hinders. In this one verse, Paul illustrates why and how we bless God, how and why God blesses us, who God is, and the Trinitarian nature of the one true God. So look at, we're going to look at five things in this verse. Don't let that scare you. They're brief. First, I want, I, want to, I want to go into a little bit deeper what it means to bless God. Literally, it means to speak well of. When we bless God, we speak well of Him. We declare Him. We serve Him. Blessing the, the Lord is a response from our redeemed hearts to His overflowing in us in Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do we bless God in how we live? Do we bless God in how we think? Do we bless God in how we interact with others? Well, in Christ, in Christ is Paul's favorite description of the Christian. We are blessed in Christ. That means nothing has been withheld from us. Anything that you can think of that is glorious and righteous from Scripture, we've been given that in Christ. Jesus himself is our great salvation through faith in him alone. In Christ is a reference again to our union with Christ as salvation, at salvation. Jesus is our great salvation. That's why we bless him and praise him. Secondly, the name of God in this verse has been updated from his identity with theocratic Israel to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The commentaries, this was a, uh, an interesting thing to read about. The reason um, I read on a couple of commentaries, I just thought this was really neat. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ is to signal the international character of the new covenant in contrast to the old. God is no longer exclusively the God of Israel, but through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, he is now both the God of Greek and Jew. Israel, who were the people of the covenant promise, and the Gentiles, who were formerly far off, can now both have access to the living God in and through Jesus Christ. Third, to say that God the Father is the God of Jesus does not deny in any way the incarnate Son's true identity. Not at all. 
It's to express Jesus' true and full humanity and that through him, God is also our God and Father. Now, I don't know anything about the ancient religions, the ancient pagan religions, but the commentaries I was reading had some good stuff on this, and I thought this was interesting. Uh, to, to explain how, how the writers of the New Testament through the Holy Spirit wanted to carefully communicate to the people they were talking to. So uh, S.M. Baugh and John Stott uh, primarily. For many ancient pagan peoples like the Ephesians, the appearance of God in the flesh or appearing in a form of humanity was, was, was fairly common in their literature, in their religious festivals. They also say, though, there's no parallel for that in the Greco-Roman gods to appear as truly human. So, S.M. Boss says, so New Testament writers had to work hard to clarify to their audience, to their contemporaries that they were writing to, that the Son of God made his appearance as a man in the flesh. This is expressed later in the passage to the redemptive benefits that God lavished on us as his people in and through Jesus Christ. Now, so the point he says, consider carefully how carefully these books were crafted, the authors taking into consideration their audience and trying to find the best way to communicate the realities of God and how in Christ they are now saved. A different audience received the very same message of the gospel, but maybe in a different way or a different method. I thought that was fascinating. So the Ephesian people could relate to this idea that God took on flesh. Another culture like the Greeks, not, not so much. It's fascinating, isn't it? Men don't write such books, folks. <laughs> they don't do it. I'm going to spend most of my time here in the fourth one. Um, I do some of my best thinking mowing the barn lot. Where do you do your thinking? Um, and th I really wanted us to think about this this morning. Four, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Well, what does that mean? And what does this mean for us? Well, first, it means that nothing has been withheld from us. I've said that. That could bring us salvation or any more blessings in Christ. Salvation, forgiveness, eternal life, assurance, hope, justification. We are sanctified. We're adopted. The list is, un is you can go on all day. It means that Jesus himself is the great salvation that is ours through faith in him. Okay, so salvation is a state of being, but it is more than that. It is a person. Did you ever think our salvation is a person? The blessed Son of God the Father, his only begotten Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own Son, so God didn't spare his own Son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And you know what all means? All. All. Wow. In Jesus, all the blessings of God are found. He's the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, our sanctification, and our redemption. So, on the old tractor, how do I apply this? How do I apply this? got to think about Philippians. Paul wrote Philippians. In Philippians 3, 8, Paul writes, I also count all things that I have lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Okay. So I want us to remember Paul is living in a Roman prison. Spent a lot of time in a dungeon. He was tied to a pole, couldn't stand up or lay down. But he still holds on to these blessings that he has in Jesus. And then in Philippians 4, he gives us direction, I believe, on how to do this. 
I don't think I told Connor to put it up. Philippians 4.4. 4. Uh, you can turn there. I'm going to just run through this real quickly. I think this is just a great pattern. I like these patterns in Scripture. Paul writes, he's in, a, he's in a dungeon, he's in a prison, treated well, I'm sure. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. And then he gives this list of exhortations, instructions to us of what we are to do in the Christian life, but not just in the Christian life, when things start to close in on us, right? Things start to close in on us. And that just may be at home with kids. Yeah, I'm losing my mind. But he says this, and this so applies to me. Do not be anxious. Take a breath. In everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And here's the result of doing that. So I'm going to pray. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to pray. I'm going to present my petitions with a thankful heart to Christ. And here's what's going to happen. The peace of God which transcends all understanding, which means it takes it, it rises it above anything we could do in our own ability, beyond our limits in ways that we cannot understand, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Anybody that's over 30 has been someplace with somebody in your family, death, sickness, your own health concerns, and you can understand what Paul is saying there. Do you see what Paul is telling us to do? He's telling us to unplug from our flesh, plug into the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, and who better to tell us that than Paul? Now, I know how life is, and none of this is perfect. Life is bumpy. Life has curves and fastballs, and we get caught by surprise, and it's okay. But there's a pattern. There's a pattern to help us live out our blessings. This is a gift from the Father through Jesus Christ. There's a pattern for us to call on. In verse 8, then, Paul takes this a step further. This could almost become before verse 4. And he says, this will help you get your mind right. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about these things. Some translations, meditate on these things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I think this is our great reality to understand and to live out every spiritual blessing. It's one thing to know them. And it's another thing to put them into practice. They should have a direct impact on how we live and how we think and how we act and who we are. And let me be honest. I'll be 62 years old in a couple of weeks. I have much to understand and much to gain yet in my walk with Christ. And that is a blessing, isn't it? We never get there. Praise God. John Stott writes, the greatest practical good for the Christian, listen to this old saint, the greatest practical good for the Christian derives from our ever-deepening knowledge of our communion with Jesus Christ. Take that home with you today. This is why we bless our Heavenly Father. What He has done for us and His Son should prompt us to bless Him, to glorify Him, to adore Him, to rejoice in Him. Our private and corporate lives should be marked by joyful thanksgiving. Is it? Our public worship service should pulse with the wonder of sinners forgiven by grace, blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing by a loving Heavenly Father. And if our lives and our worship are lacking in these areas, 
then we are no longer captivated and overwhelmed by the gospel. The, the great plea for us is to be, free, to be more freshly acquainted with our privileges in Christ. It is the church's greatest need. It is your greatest need. And I can guarantee you, it is my greatest need. Fifth, last in this verse, I want us to see the wonderful reference to the Trinity as Paul describes our blessedness. I think Rich said that this morning in class that uh, the entire Godhead is involved in our salvation. Amen. First, God the Father. He's the source of every blessing. Verse 3, He blessed us. Verse 4, He chose us. Verse 5, He predestined us to be His sons. And by the way, I may say this later, but the word there for son, ladies, and not, not to be all tweaky cultural thing here, but that's the same word like mankind. It means sons and daughters. So uh, you're with us, ladies. God knows we need you, right? Six, he freely bestowed on us his grace. Eight, he lavished his grace upon us. This entire paragraph is full of God the Father who has set his love on us, poured his grace upon us, and who is working out his eternal plan on each of us. Amen? Second, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sphere which the divine blessings are bestowed and received. In the first 14 verses of this letter, Jesus is mentioned by name or title 15 times. Do you think the Lord Jesus is important? It is in Christ that God has blessed us in time and chosen us in eternity. It is the Father's beloved Son that grace is lavished on us. In Jesus we have redemption Forgiveness of our sins by his blood. And there is no forgiveness at all without the blood of Jesus. Third, the Holy Spirit. As I said in, in the beginning, this, this section goes to verse 14. Uh, we stopped at 8. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned until verse 13. But he is actively assumed throughout because Paul stresses that these blessings of God in Christ are spiritual. It is the Holy Spirit that applies these blessings the distinctive blessings of the new covenant are spiritual. For example, the law of God, the word of God is now written on our hearts. And we now have a personal knowledge and relationship with God. Forgiveness of sins are applied to us by God through the Holy Spirit. So as Christians, we are Trinitarian. We believe in one God and three persons, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And here Paul paints a wonderful picture of how all have a role in the blessing of each believer. Ian Hamilton writes, the Father, the, Father, the Father originates salvation, the Son accomplishes salvation, and the Holy Spirit applies salvation. We have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ and the heavenly places. Praise be to God. Secondly, the past blessing of election, verses 4 through 6. And I'm, I'm going to read the verses. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he lavished or bestowed, depending on your text, on us in the beloved. Election brings or brought salvation. In verse 4, it says he chose us. The Greek simply means here he simply just chose us. He selected us. The emphasis in verses 3 through 14 are God's initiative in redeeming his people from their transgressions that is only accomplished in union with Jesus Christ. So the meditation, the, excuse me, the mediation of Christ is essential for any benefit from God. 
as read earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is why Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's why that Jesus is the living water. That's why Jesus is the bread of life. Apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. And this was planned by God, verse 5, verse 9, verse 11, before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, in, pre, he, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. Predestined means kind of uh, to be, uh, like to render out, mark out, or stake out, or survey a piece of property. But when the object becomes people, the commentator writes that it is closer to like being appointed or that we've been pre-appointed to the position of a son or a daughter, as is according to the good pleasure of his will. So in this verse, Paul reaches back before creation, before the creation of the world, before time began, to eternity past. And in that pre-creation eternity, God did something. He formed a plan and a purpose in his mind and will. And this purpose concerned both his son and each of us. He determined to make us, who did not yet exist, his own children, through the redeeming work of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what makes salvation exclusive. It's only in Christ because of his redeeming work. The purpose arose from God's unmerited favor. We do nothing. As we will see from verse 4, he chose us and there was a definite outcome planned that we would be holy and without blame before him, which indicates that we were unholy and blameworthy when he chose us. Instead of adoption, we were deserving of judgment. Now, I don't know so much here, but the doctrine of election can be difficult for many. You've had people probably ask you, well, didn't I choose God? And I said, well, sure you did, and freely. But only because in eternity past, God chose you first. You may ask, didn't I decide to follow Jesus, that wonderful song? Yes, you did. But only because in eternity past, God decided for you first. A.W. Tozer wrote, before we can pursue God, he must pursue us. Nowhere in Scripture is this mystery of election dispelled. It's not likely that we'll ever discover a simple solution to the doctrine that's baffled the best minds in Christian for centuries. But this morning, quickly, three important truths for us to grasp from this passage about election. First, I want to show election is a blessing. And it's not something we're to sweep under the table and not talk about in mixed company. Election is a blessing. No election, nobody goes to heaven. Everybody limits atonement. Amen? Everybody. We just feel better when we do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going. I'll go on my time. Okay. Well, then you're not going. The doctrine of election is a divine revelation, not human speculation. Election was not invented by Augustine or Calvin or Luther. It is without a doubt a biblical doctrine. In the Old Testament, God chose Israel out of all the nations in the world. Why? Because he loved them. He selected them. In the New Testament, I love this language. God is choosing a new nation to make a new international community of saints. All are welcome. Every nation tried tongue. One, one, one commentary says, the clans, the clans. Maybe you think the Scots. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Ephesians is John Calvin's favorite epistle. Listen to this guy. He preached 48 sermons from Ephesians 6 alone. I'm exhausted. Here's a comment from Calvin on election. Although we cannot conceive either by argument or reason how God has elected us before the creation of the world, yet we know it by his declaring it so. 
and our experience vouches for its sufficiency when we were enlightened by faith. What a great answer. I'm not exactly how all it works, but there is a declaring and there is an enlightening. And without that, even before I knew what election was, I once told a pastor as a young Christian, I didn't save myself and I thought he was going to fall out of his chair. Election is a divine revelation, not a human speculation. Secondly, the doctrine of election is an incentive to holiness, not an excuse to sin. Uh, the doctrine of election gives us strong assurance of eternal security. Absolutely. Since God chose us and called us, we will, he will keep us to the end, right? Okay. But our security does not condone or encourage sin. It was mentioned somewhere today, maybe in class. You've probably heard of the, the carnal Christian thing, and we've experienced some of this, especially with the younger people we once discipled, uh, that now they're drinking in excess, or they're using weird, vulgar language. I think they, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but they're doing these things, and they're saying, you know, relax, grouchy old dude, we're, we're covered by grace for these indiscretions. Well, at the end of verse 4, Paul writes that God chose us to be holy and blameless before him. There is a divine purpose in our election. We are set apart as his special people. We are no longer motivated by the lust and the temptations of the world. Get tired of that. So grace doesn't lax our behavior. It intensifies our behavior in the sense that we are being transformed, right Christian, more into the image of Jesus, not the world. Grace raises the bar. It does not lower it. And we should desire this and it should not be a burden. We should embrace it. I think Peter had the great quote and I should have wrote it down. And it's so right. The great theologian F.F. F. Bruce comments, the predestined love of God is commended more by those who lead a holy and Christ-like life than those who attempt to unravel the mystery partaking in the nature of logic chopping. Now, logic chopping is someone who just loves to engage in excessive arguing over a doctrine or a subject. We provide evidence of God's choosing by simply living a quiet, obedient, Christ-centered life. Because if Christ hasn't saved you, why would you be doing that? We are set apart. Thirdly, the doctrine of election is a stimulus for humility, not a ground of boasting. I was once told by a fellow Christian who was not reformed that I, saying I've been chosen by God, was the most arrogant thing he had ever heard. And I would agree with him if I believed that I was chosen because of something that I had done to accomplish that salvation. But see, election teaches us just the opposite. Remember, God just chose Israel. The same is true for us. And I think in this letter, Paul is hammering that out. Verse 5, having predestined us to adoption, okay, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he freely lavished on us in the beloved, in his son Jesus Christ. The emphasis on this entire first paragraph is God's grace, God's love, God's will, God's purpose, and God's choosing to his glory and our good. Election is free. An election beats down and annihilates all the worthiness of works and any possible virtue that we may think we have. Get over yourself. It's all in Christ. The truth of election, however many unresolved problems one might have, always leads us to righteousness, not sin, and to adoring gratitude in humility and never boasting. Thirdly, this point's very short, and it's a great point. 
uh, verses 5 uh, through 8, the present blessing of adoption. And I've read those uh, middle verses. I want us to see seven especially. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us with wisdom and understanding. Now verse 5 says that God destined us in love to be his sons and daughters. Election is in view to adoption. When people speculate, and I like this, this is John Stott, I believe, why God went ahead with creation when he knew that it would be followed with the fall. He says, well, one thing you could tell people is God destined something for us with such a higher dignity than original creation could offer when he bestowed his blessing upon us of adoption. He intended to adopt us and make us his sons and daughters. He knew we would fall, and he knew he would adopt us. Two things with this closing point that determined our adoption. We're predestined to be sons and daughters. Now, adoption in the ancient Greek or Roman world had a bit of a different connotation than today. Uh, it was not just about becoming part of a family, but also there was this, this heir thing, this, uh, this inheritance. For example, if your dad was the patron of the town, if you were a son, you inherited that, uh, you inherited that position. So Paul is declaring to all believers, Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free, that you've been transferred by fiat, by command or authorization, by your heavenly father into his son, into his family as sons and daughters through the redeeming act of his beloved son. And this act was motivated by love not self-interest. And I think it's important to remember that this act was motivated by love, not manipulation, not by deceit, not something else. It was by love, not self-interest. According to his goodwill and to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, Jesus. Consider the impact of this on a slave in the Greco-Roman world. They legally were not considered to be human. Now, for the Christian, this is S.M. Ball. And, and, and I, I like this. He says, Christians at Ephesus who were slaves, or maybe former slaves, to hear God had predestined them, not just to be free, but to be ruling sons and daughters and heirs, must have been an astoundingly magnificent coming to the understanding of God's lavish grace that had been poured out upon them through his eternal love. And then he writes, this is why they were faithful. They understood what had happened to them. They had come from subhuman to heirs with Christ. The depth of the love of God overwhelmed them, now heirs of God. And all of you sitting here this morning who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have been through the very same adoption process and I think you should sit back and think about that for a moment. We need to grasp the depth of the love of Christ in our own adoption. Second, we are redeemed through his blood. Redemption means deliverance by payment of price. Redemption here is equated with forgiveness. Verse 7, in him we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Adoption and redemption are present blessings and privileges we have now. We're enjoying those right now. Verse 5, it comes according to the good pleasure of God's will. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he bestowed on us in Jesus. Verse 7, redeemed by his blood, forgiven in accordance with his grace. Verse 8, which he lavished on us. Lavish here is to have a generous or extravagant quantity. 
bestowed upon you. He didn't give you a little bit and go, there's your grace. He dumped a boatload of grace on you. He filled you with grace. How does that make you feel? Our cup runneth over. God just didn't give you grace. He lavished grace upon you. The Lord himself acted in the redemption of his people. He redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. But the gospel goes deeper. It is the slavery to guilt of sin and transgression which he eternally redeems all of his people from. We have been spiritually set free and the new covenant draws believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Well, this morning we've looked at how God has blessed us, how we in return are to bless God, that our election is from eternity past in love, and we are now living in the present blessing of God's election as his sons and daughters, heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we do with this information, with this knowledge of what God has done for us in and through Jesus Christ? I, I just thought of two words. How do we apply every spiritual blessing? I went through that in point four of verse three, but a couple of things struck me um, yesterday. First, purpose. Are we always asking what our purpose is? And I just jotted these things down. Our ultimate purpose is to be a disciple of Jesus and then to make more disciples. Amen. Our blessings are not to be kept secret. We should be an active participant in the kingdom of God daily. The noise and the static of the world, we need to, to block it out, not letting it affect us. You know, Philippians 4, be locked into Jesus more. The blessings he laid upon us, we need to redirect our hearts and minds. We need to do it every day. Redirect every day. We are to be holy and blameless, a new creation. And the purpose for our new creation is to build a new society around us, unlike the one the culture is making. That's our purpose. Did you know our family is a culture, a society? And every Christian then on Sunday gathers with a larger section of that new society created in Jesus Christ. And that happens all over the world every day. And we are to pass that down generation to generation. The purpose keeps flowing. Paul said in Romans 15, 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Our ambition should be no less. So there's great purpose. Secondly, people. First, invest in the people around you. If you have a family, disciple them. Read the Bible as a family. Sing as a family. Pray as a family. If you have children, catechize them. Spend time with the right people, young men especially. If you're with people that don't live out the fruits of the Spirit, get rid of them. They're going to drag you down. Be around people that always lift you up, people that have an initiative, people that are go-getters, people that move forward, not backward, never stay the same. You never stay the same. You're going to get worse or better every day. Get better. Don't hang around people that drag you down. Bad company corrupts good character. Invest in those around you. Invest in people in your immediate family, people outside you. We've been given the keys to eternity, forgiveness of sins, life anew, life anew on earth. The world around us is dying. It's in chaos. It is in need of the same blessings we have received. We're not saved to ourselves. The world can only know Jesus if we tell them, if we walk it, if we talk it, and if we're an example. Life is about building relationships. Make that a daily priority. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. May we bless him in how we live. Purpose in people. Be an active participant in the kingdom of God. Be a disciple. Invest in those people around you that Jesus has put in your sphere of influence. And I love what Jesus says in John 38 as I close. 
He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.